0: Chapter One of A History of American Political Theories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One The Political Theory of the Colonists. A study of American political theories may appropriately begin with an examination of the ideas of the colonists who laid the foundations upon which the national structure now rests. In view of the fact that the Puritan ideals, political and moral, have been so potent a force in the development of American national characteristics, attention will first be directed to the Puritan political tenets. Puritanism was primarily a religious and not a political movement. Its central doctrine was that the spiritual element in worship is of far greater importance than the ceremonial element. The Puritans condemned a ritualistic service as not only unnecessary and superfluous, but positively injurious and sinful, and they demanded a style of worship from which the ceremonial features were as nearly as possible eliminated. The Anglican Church they bitterly denounced for its failure to carry through the desired reforms and its retention of so many of the features of the Roman worship. Theologically, Puritanism was closely allied to Calvinism, and it resembled Calvin's system on the political side also. In common with the other adherents of the Reformation, the Puritans denied the binding force of church tradition, precedent, and law, asserting that the scriptures are the only authoritative guide of human conduct. In a study of Puritan politics, It is essential, therefore, to remember that the spirit and purpose of the Puritans' movement was only incidentally political. Their aim was to found a spiritual, not a political organization, a church rather than a state. They were interested, above all things, in the true worship of God, which meant to them, of course, the Puritan style of worship. It is important to observe, at the outset, the basis upon which the Puritans rested their commonwealth. Having rejected the authority of the Church in ecclesiastical law and precedent— they relied solely upon the scriptures as a guide for all conduct, public as well as private, and considered the Bible as the only proper foundation upon which either a state or a church could rest. They attempted to deduce from the Old and New Testaments their whole system of public law, finding in these writings expressly or by implication, authority for the government as organized and administered. As their theology and their form of church government rested upon a scriptural basis, so must their political theory and their state have the same foundation. This idea was well stated by John Eliot in his work on the Christian Commonwealth, or the civil policy of the rising kingdom of Jesus Christ, when he said that, There is undoubtedly a form of civil government instituted by God himself in the Holy Scriptures, whereby any nation may enjoy all the ends and effects of government in the best manner, were they but, persuaded to make trial of it, we should derogate from the sufficiency and perfection of the scriptures if we should deny it. In the establishment of New Haven, Colony, one of the questions submitted to those participating was, whether the scriptures do hold forth a perfect rule for the direction and government of all men in all duties which they are to perform to God and men, as well in the government of families and in the commonwealth, as in the matters of church. And to this all assented. This idea runs through the Puritan thought of that time. They devoutly believed that somewhere in the scriptures there must be a rule of public as well as of private conduct, and they further believed that they had discovered and were applying this rule in the development of their political institutions. The particular part of the Bible upon which they relied for this purpose was the Old Testament, with its frequent references to the political experiences of the children of Israel. This was a rich mine of precedent to which the Puritans frequently resorted when in need of such support to justify their conduct. It is not to be assumed, however, that the Puritans really constructed their entire political system from an interpretation of the scriptures. They brought with them to the new world the English common law, English political precedent, and tradition of centuries growth. This was beyond question the real basis of their system, and the additions to this from interpretation of the scriptures were less important than the Puritans themselves thought. It would be near the truth to say that they did not begin with the scriptures and build upon a complete system, but that they attempted to justify a system already in existence by finding for it a scriptural basis. In the general tendency to test all things by scripture, it was only natural that the state should be subjected to the same treatment, and that an attempt should be made to find a scriptural model for political institutions. The system of government adopted by the Puritans was what might perhaps be called theocratic in character. The most cursory view could not fail to reveal the predominant position of the clergy. From the beginning, the life of New England was largely under the influence of the ministers, in many cases men of marked learning and sagacity, whose Puritan morals and theology did not conflict with shrewd worldly wisdom. They dominated the political as well as the intellectual and religious life of community. They were consulted upon all matters of public policy, such as Indian affairs or relations with the mother country, They frequently preached political sermons bearing directly on public questions. There was never, perhaps, a body of clergy that exercised greater influence on affairs of state than these New England leaders. Especially in Massachusetts Bay, they established an ecclesiastico-political regime, recalling in many of its features the Geneva system of John Calvin. In two of the colonies, membership in some approved church was essential to full citizenship. Only those who were church members could become freemen in Massachusetts Bay and in New Haven, and it is not likely that other than church members were actually received in Plymouth and Connecticut. As late as 1660, the General Court of Massachusetts Bay resolved that no person could become a freeman who was not in full communion with some Orthodox church. The exclusive character of the Massachusetts Bay system is shown by the fact that down to 1674, only 2,527 were admitted as freemen one-fifth of the total number of adult males. Of the other features in the theocratic regime, it is not necessary to speak at length. The Sabbath laws, taxation for purposes of church support, compulsory attendance on church services, the anti-heresy acts, all were part of the general system in which the civil power was invoked to stimulate the religious sentiment and practice of the community. The same tendency is also shown by the attitude of the Puritans toward adherents of other religions, In the controversy with Roger Williams, with the Antimoniums, with the Quakers, and the Baptists, a determination was manifested to preserve the Puritan type of religion by force if necessary. Liberal use was made of fines, imprisonment, disenfranchisement, and banishment as means of grace for the spiritually perverse. The Puritans themselves were dissenters from dissenters, but they did not intend that the process of dissent should be carried farther. Their theory of the relation between church and state was clearly thought out in the famous controversy between Roger Williams and John Cotton, the spokesman for the Massachusetts Theocracy. An examination of this controversy may seem somewhat remote from the field of political theory, but only through such an inquiry is it possible to arrive at a satisfactory understanding of the political ideas of the Puritan. The gist of the Williams-Cotton debate is found in three pamphlets occasioned by the banishment of Williams. These were the bloody tenant of persecution for cause of conscience, 1644, by Williams. The bloody tenant washed and made white in the blood of the lamb, 1647, by Cotton. The bloody tenant yet more bloody, 1652, by Williams. Two of the most significant topics discussed may be considered here. First, the nature of the church and the state. Second, the extent of the civil power in religious affairs. First, then, the theory as to the nature of the Church gives the key to the understanding of the entire dispute. Williams' contention was that the state is distinct from and may exist without the Church, as, for example, among heathen people. The Church, said Williams, is like unto a corporation, society, or company of East India or Turkey merchants, or any other society or company in London, which may wholly break up and dissolve into pieces and nothing, and yet... peace of the city not be in the least measure impaired or disturbed. This is true because the essence of the church and the state is different, and consequently the religion may be radically changed, while the government of the city or state remains unchanged, or the government may be altered without affecting the character of the religion. Ephesus may cease to worship Diana, and still be Ephesus. Or it may happen that there are different religions in the same city, the aim of all these religions being distinct from that of the state. Cotton, for his part, agreed that the church is a separate society distinct from the state, but held that the church is the chief society in the state, and that the growth and welfare of the state are dependent on the purity of the church. The church, although not the essence of the state, nevertheless pertains to the integrity of the city. It is among the conservant causes of the state and cannot be broken up without affecting profoundly the welfare of the body politic. Cotton conceded that there are historical examples of states which have flourished under heathendom, but he declared that after the true church is once introduced, then this true worship must be protected by the state. The crucial question in the controversy was that concerning the proper extent of the power of the civil magistrate in religious matters, Williams held that the true church is spiritual in nature, and as such has no need of the support of the civil magistrate in order to maintain its proper position. It does not require worldly means of defense, but should use only the spiritual weapons, such as the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Civil magistrates had never been made defenders of the faith and scriptures, and the omission shows that there had been no intent to confer such authority on them. The civil officers should not proceed to organize churches. They should not inflict punishment on those adjudged heretics or impose civil penalties or disabilities for any religious reason. Williams contended that if civil magistrates had rightful power in spiritual affairs, then even in a barbarous Indian tribe, rightful jurisdiction over the Church of Christ would be vested in the Indian civil authorities, and the Christian religion would entirely at the mercy of rulers with pagan consciences. It is clearly evident, then, that William's view of the state was decidedly secular in character. He limited its activities in religious affairs to what were called at the time breaches of the second table. Transgression of any of the last six commandments might be punished by the state, but over violations of the commandments in the first table, they should have no jurisdiction. Scandalous offense against parents, he said, against magistrates in the fifth command, and so against the life, chastity, goods, or good name and the rest— is properly transgression against the civil state and common weal, or the worldly state of men. Such offenses the government may rightfully punish, but those crimes which concern the relations of man to God it should not attempt to suppress. They are spiritual in nature, and civil penalties cannot properly affect them. On this ground, Williams denounced in vigorous terms the treatment to which he and others have been subjected as holy and warranted and unjustifiable. Cotton replied to these arguments that it is a carnal and worldly and indeed an ungodly imagination to confine the magistrates' charge to the bodies and goods of the subjects and to exclude them from the care of their souls. He maintained that it is the evident duty of the magistrates to use all available means to prevent the pollution and corruption of the church and to strive in every way to preserve its purity. He even attempted to show that laws about religion are, strictly speaking, civil laws Whatsoever concerneth the good of the city and the propulsing of the contrary is a civil law, said he. Now religion is the best good of the city, and therefore laws about religion are truly called civil laws. But Cotton's reasoning could have been inadequate and ineffective from the Puritan point of view, unless supported by scriptural authority. Unable to find any express warrant in the New Testament, Cotton met the difficulty by showing that there was not authority in that part of the Bible, even for the punishment of such crimes as adultery and murder, and that consequently, it must be assumed that a rule of action is elsewhere contained in the Scriptures. Such authority is found in the laws of Moses and the prophets who have expounded them in the Old Testament. He maintained that all the capital laws of the Mosaic Code are of universal validity, And whatever the kings of Israel inflicted on transgressors of either the first or the second table was a pattern and example to Christian magistrates. Thus basing himself on the Mosaic Law, Cotton found abundant sanction for any measures required to preserve the peace and purity of the church. Such phrases as, Thou shalt surely kill him, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, seemed to him to justify almost any means that might be used. It is evident, then, that Cotton was a thorough believer in the doctrine that it is the right and duty of the magistrates to punish transgressions against the commandments contained in either of the tables. In addition to the offenses specified by Williams, Cotton included many others. He declared that one who holds an erroneous doctrine or practice is a violator of the civil law. He who refuseth to subject his spirit to the spirit of the prophets in a holy church of Christ comes under the same category. Even such offenses as the censorious reproach of one who rebukes their spiritual error or rejecting communion before one is convicted may be looked upon as a disturbance of the peace and hence as falling under the jurisdiction of the civil magistrates. In short, Cotton's theory was that the state should guarantee the observance of church law and ceremony, just as if they were its own enactment, and that to accomplish this purpose, any exercise of force would be perfectly justifiable. As he phrased it on one occasion, Legal terrors are ordinary means blessed of God to prepare hard and stout hearts to conversion. He was far from admitting, however, that he justified persecution for a cause of conscience, as Williams alleged. On the contrary, he declared that the conscience is sacred and inviolable, and not to be disturbed whether it be conscience rightly informed or conscience misinformed. A significant exception was made, however, in case it may appear that the erroneous party suffereth not for his conscience but for sinning against his conscience. In other words, individuals are not punished because they follow conscience, but because they refuse to obey its dictates, not because they are blind, but because they willfully shut their eyes. Of the same character is the argument that to persecute is to punish an innocent, but a heretic is a culpable and damnable person. Cotton realized that the action of the magistrates might result in the production of hypocrites, but better tolerate hypocrites and terrors than briars and thorns, or as elsewhere expressed, better a dead soul will be dead in body as well as in spirit than to live and be lively in the flesh. Based on like logic was the argument that in reality men never compelled to worship for though teaching and being taught in a church a state be church worship, yet it is not a church worship but to such as are in a church estate. Such was the character of Cotton's theory, and it was typical of Puritanism in the early days of settlement in America. It was the theory of men to whom the preservation of the Puritan religion was an object of paramount importance, an end for which they had already given up much, and for which they were ready to sacrifice still more. They were thoroughly convinced that it was the duty of the state to uphold and support the church at every possible point, and they acted on this conviction. In so doing, they were neither in advance of nor behind the theory and practice of their time, but simply followed the custom of all the states of that day. From one point of view, it may seem strange that the Puritans fleeing from persecution in England, should prove so ready to persecute in turn those who dissented from Puritanism. What the Puritans objected to, however, was not the use of force to maintain religion, but the use of forces to support any other than the true religion. Regarding their own form of worship as the true one, they considered it perfectly just to call on the civil power to preserve it, even by force if necessary. Having considered the Puritan theory of the relation between church and state, We now turn to an inquiry into the question how far Puritanism was democratic. It would be wide of the truth to assert that at the beginning there was any general enthusiasm for democracy, as such. John Cotton on one occasion, 1644, denounced democracy as the meanest and worst of all forms of government, and on another occasion openly endorsed theocracy. A proposition for the establishment of an aristocracy was made to Massachusetts Bay in 1634, and was rejected only because it involved the abandonment of the church membership requirement for suffrage. Two distinct ranks we willingly acknowledged from the light of nature and scripture, they said, The one of them called princes or nobles or elders, amongst whom the gentlemen have their place, the other the people. Hereditary dignity or honors we willingly allow to the former, unless by the scandalous and base conversation of any of them they become degenerate. It is also notable that only a part of the inhabitants of the colonies were made freemen. in the case of Massachusetts only about one-fifth. Inhabitants and freemen were sharply distinguished and were accorded different degrees of political privilege. All of these features were undemocratic. Other parts of the Puritan system show more democratic tendencies. Among these was the emphasis on local self-government, finding expression in the town government which has played so conspicuous a part in American constitutional development. Furthermore, careful provision for adequate protection of civil rights was made by the colonies in such notable instruments as the Body of Liberties in Massachusetts Bay sixteen forty one and the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut sixteen thirty nine. These were largely, however, the guarantee of the ordinary rights of Englishmen and consequently cannot be regarded as exclusively Puritan in character. A democratic tendency is seen in the method adopted in the formation of the new communities by the Puritans. The use of the contract as a basis for the establishment of a body politic was a widespread practice in the New England colonies. The first of these was the famous Mayflower Covenant of 1620. Here it was declared that the undersigned, due by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant, and combine ourselves into a civil body politic, for our better ordering and preservation, and furtherance of the ends foresaid, and by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and officers from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience." Another illustration of the same principle is afforded by the example of Connecticut in the adoption of the Fundamental Orders. In this agreement, it was stated that we, the inhabitants and residents of Windsor, Hartford, and Wethersfield, do associate and conjoin ourselves to be as one public state or a commonwealth, and do for ourselves and our successors and such as shall be adjoined to us at any time hereafter, enter into combination and confederation together to maintain and. Preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess, as also the discipline of the churches, which according to the truth of the said gospel is now practiced amongst us, as also in our civil affairs to be guided and governed according to such laws, rules, orders, and decrees as shall be made, order, and decreed as followeth. In Rhode Island, there were many similar contracts made as, for instance, the agreement at Providence in 1636 and at Portsmouth in 1638. In the latter, the form of the covenant was as follows. We whose names are underwritten do here solemnly in the presence of Jehovah incorporate ourselves into a body politic, and as he shall help, will submit our persons, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ. It is now necessary to inquire into the theory on which these contracts rested. The discussion of this question, however, involves an examination of the theory on which the New England churches were constructed. These ecclesiastical organizations, it appears, were formed on what is known as the Separatist Plan, namely by voluntary agreement between a number of individuals to constitute themselves as a church. This was the method followed by the Separatists in England, who believed that the church is not formed by action of the state or by virtue of apostolic succession, but is merely a number of believers under a covenant with God. Although the New England Puritans were not all separatists while in England, they became so almost as soon as they reached this country and proceeded to adopt the covenant as the proper method of forming a church. Official recognition of this idea was given in the Cambridge platform adopted in 1648, when reference was here made to the visible covenant agreement or consent, whereby they give themselves unto the Lord, to the observing of the ordinances of Christ together in the same society, which is usually called the Church Covenant. This covenant was described as the same as that which made Abraham and the children of Israel the people of God, and was declared to have the force of constituting societies of believers as churches. A remarkably clear and definite statement of the contract idea was made in a work by the famous Connecticut divine, Thomas Hooker, a survey of the sum of Church discipline, 1648. The reasoning of Hooker, to which almost no attention has been given, is notable for its early exposition of the contract theory and the way in which it anticipates such classic writers as John Locke. Hooker urges that all men are ecclesiastically equal, and where every man remains uncontrolled, there must follow the distraction and desolation of the whole. In the building, he said he, if the parts be neither mortized nor brazed, as there will be little beauty, so there can be no strength. It's so in setting up the frames of societies among men When their minds and hearts are not mortized by mutual consent of subjection, one to another, there is no expectation of any successful proceeding with the advantage to the public. Mutual subjection, he declares, is, as it were, the sinews of society by which it is sustained and supported. He calls attention to two classes of covenant, the explicit and the implicit, and indicates a preference for the explicit agreement. The effect of this contract is to make every part subject to the whole and bound by its orders, Nevertheless, the people still retain the power of judgment over each other, and hence they proceed against any officer that goes aside. This they do, though not by any power of office, for they are not officers, but by power of judgment, which they do possess. This is a striking anticipation of the theory of revolution later developed by John Locke. In the one case, the theory is applied to the church, however, and in the other case, to the state. The idea of the contract as the basis of associations was not peculiar to Hooker, But was common to the new england puritans of his day in defense of their form of church organization government and discipline they asserted again and again that the contract is the method by which all associations are formed all voluntary relations it was said in the apology all relations which are neither natural nor violent are entered into by way of covenant hooker stated the idea with great clearness of force but he spoke only as a representative of the general opinion in new england In the face of strong opposition from England, the Puritans defended the formation of churches through contract, the election of pastors and teachers by the people, the rule of majority in church affairs, the right of the congregation to discipline or dismiss their ecclesiastical head. Frequent reference was made to the contracts of Old Testament days. For example, Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people, two kings eleven seventeen. Another similar precedent was found in Deuteronomy twenty nine. Ye stand this day all of you before the Lord your God, that thou should enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a god. It seems to have been the prevailing idea that a contract was the necessary basis for both the church and the state. These two classes of covenants were known respectively as the church covenant and the plantation covenant, and there was an intimate relation between the democratic method of forming a church and the democratic method of forming a state. Let us now consider briefly the Puritan ideas of liberty and equality from the political side. First, then, was the Puritan conception of liberty. The common idea that the Puritans were enthusiasts for political freedom can hardly be sustained. What they were chiefly concerned about was moral rather than political liberty. This was shown by Winthrop when he divided liberty into two classes, natural liberty and civil or federal liberty. The first kind, natural liberty, is absolute and unlimited and cannot be subjected to any restraint whatever from the side of authority. Civil or federal liberty, on the other hand, is constituted by the covenant between God and man and by the political covenant. This liberty is freedom to do that which is good, just, and honest. It is, says Winthrop, the same kind of liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free That is to say, freedom from the bondage of sin and the restraints it involves. Liberty was not conceived as absolute and unqualified lack of restraint, but as freedom of motion in that particular direction in which one should go in accordance with the covenant made with God. The Puritans brought with them the endowed liberties of Englishmen, and these they were careful to preserve. The political liberty, however, about which they were most anxious was the independence of their corporation or society this, they were always ready to defend against any other authority, especially the rule or attempted rule of the Home Government in England, but they were not so eager in behalf of the individual within the corporation. The corporate conscience and the corporate conduct must be free and untrammeled, and not necessarily the conduct and conscience of the individual. The Puritans did not preach or practice religious toleration, nor did they become enthusiastic about the inherent rights of man. They jealously guarded their traditional English liberties. They were earnestly desirous of moral and spiritual freedom, but their great end and aim politically was to secure a kind of civil government under which their religious system could best be maintained. Nor were the Puritans given to assertions about the innate equality of all men. Particularly in Massachusetts Bay, there were manifest in the early period decidedly aristocratic tendencies. The equality upon which the Puritans laid greatest stress, and which was to them most significant, was the equality of all men before God. Before him, all men were regarded as sinners, hopelessly lost, so far as their own efforts could avail, and no one more worthy than another. In the doctrine of the fall, there is no room for rank or preeminence, but all are reduced to one common level. Thus it appears that the Puritans were believers in what is sometimes termed spiritual equality, as distinguished from other types. And even in this connection, as has been suggested, they held to democracy in the fall, but aristocracy in the redemption, for only the elect were regarded as saved. Nor did they grant religious equality to all, for, as already indicated, they were intolerant of other religions than their own. The idea of full and complete freedom to choose whatever religion the individual might prefer, they were not prepared to accept, as a controversy between Williams and Cotton indicates. They did not entertain doctrinaire ideas about equality of any kind. They granted equality in civil rights, but did not include equality of political rights even among the adult males. This was true not only of the earlier period of the Puritan age, but of the later as well. For the religious requirements at first exacted were succeeded in the latter part of the 17th century by property qualifications for office holding and for suffrage. The conclusion must be then that for political equality as such, there was no great enthusiasm among the Puritans. From this discussion, it is evident that Puritanism in New England and particularly in Massachusetts Bay may fairly be characterized as theocratic. The dominant class was the clergy. Church membership was a prerequisite to full citizenship. The civil power was invoked to ensure to the church financial support, to enforce church discipline, to suppress and root out heresy. From a consideration of these tendencies of Puritanism, it might perhaps be assumed that there was no democratic element in the system worth considering. It would, however, be just as far from the truth to conclude that there was no democratic element in Puritanism, as to assume that its adherents came to the new world for the express purpose of establishing political and religious liberty for all men. Neither claim is borne out by a consideration of the Puritan theory and practice. Of greatest significance from the standpoint of democratic political theory is the Puritan idea of the contract. Primarily applied to ecclesiastical relations, to the formation of a congregation through the instrumentality of a church covenant, the same theory of the contract was carried over into political relations. The church covenant and the plantation covenant went hand in hand. This theory of contract necessarily emphasized the importance of the individual as the unit in both the ecclesiastical and the political society, for it was voluntary consent and not divine right or long-established custom that was the basis of both church and state. This individualistic idea contained a germ of democracy which could not fail to develop under favorable conditions. In New England, the early tendencies toward aristocracy or theocracy soon began to disappear, and the process of democratizing social and political institutions began a course which is not yet completed. This result cannot all be attributed to Puritanism as such, however. The Puritans inherited from English ancestors and brought with them to the New World the political capacity characteristic of a highly developed political people. There was also a highly favorable environment, inviting if not compelling. The growth of a democratic society and state. In estimating the democratic value of Puritanism, these facts cannot be ignored. Next in importance and interest to the political ideas of the Puritans were those of the Friends in Pennsylvania. Here it was worked out a system differing from that of the Puritans in respect to religious tenets and upon many political principles. In the religious teachings of the Friends, the sternness and severity of the Puritan theology was in many ways modified. In place of the doctrine of election, it was taught that the grace of God is universal in its application, and that there is an immediate revelation of the Spirit of God to each individual soul in the form of an inner light. In this respect, the doctrine of the friends was the antithesis of Puritanism. In other ways, however, the friends were more Puritan than the Puritans themselves. They not only denounced ceremonialism as fiercely as did the Puritans, but further abandoned all sacraments, denied the necessity for any special priesthood, denounced church tithes, and refused to take an oath or have anything to do with war. They emphasized plainness of dress and directness of speech, and refused to uncover the head or bow to any man. But at the same time, the Quakers possessed practical characteristics that enabled them to achieve great worldly success. Of this, the establishment of the colony of Pennsylvania was a signal proof. The government of Pennsylvania was on the whole about as democratic as that of the Puritan colonies. The emphasis on the contract was lacking, but the theocratic element found in New England was also wanting. Religious toleration was granted to all deists, and there was no religious qualification for office except belief in Christianity. The ecclesiastical organization of the friends was more democratic than that of the Puritans. There was no special body of ministers exercising authority over the people. Women were granted equal rights with men, and the meetings, whether for business or worship, were conducted with the grace and formality not even a presiding officer being regarded as necessary. An interesting fragment of Quaker theory is contained in the frame of government drawn up by Penn for the colony. In this document, attention is called to the great ends of government, which are said to be two namely, to terrify evil doers and to cherish those that do well. Particular emphasis is laid on this double character of governmental activity. They weakly err, it is said, that think. There is no other use of government than correction, which is the coarsest part of it. Of the forms of government, three are suggested as being most commonly discussed, but the conclusion is drawn that any government is free to the people under it, where the laws rule and the people are a party to those laws. Any government will work in the proper hands, for like clock they go from the motion communicated to them and in general depend on men rather than men on governments. Good men will always have good laws, whereas good laws may lack in men for their enforcement. The great end of the frame of government was declared to be to support power and reverence with the people and to secure the people from the abuse of power. The opposition of the Quakers to taking the oath and to participation in war involved them at times in difficult situations. It was charged by their enemies that their unwillingness to take an oath frequently resulted in failure to convict criminals, since in some communities no sworn jury could be secured. This seems, however, to have occasioned no serious difficulty, and the matter was finally settled by granting the Quakers the privilege of affirming instead of taking the oath. The refusal of the Friends to take up arms was a matter of greater importance. During the intercolonial wars, frequent requisitions were made upon them for a quota of troops. All such requests were refused, however, even when the colony was itself threatened with invasion by the enemy. They steadfastly declined to send any soldiers or to grant any money for the conduct of the military operations. It was argued that if they could maintain a local police force and take human life in punishment for crime, they might properly take up arms, at least in self-defense. But the Quakers maintained that a distinction must be drawn here. It was one thing they said to kill a soldier fighting in obedience to the commands of his sovereign, and another to kill a burglar who maliciously steals one's goods in willful violation of laws human and divine. Although they declined to send troops or vote money for the war, the Quakers did not put themselves in the position of absolutely refusing assistance to the government to which they owed allegiance. They were willing to contribute money to the home government, provided it was not used for military purposes but for other governmental needs. For example, in 1709, the assembly voted 500 pounds as a present for the queen. In 1745, they voted 4,000 pounds for bread, beef, pork, flour, wheat, and other grain. We have ever held it our duty, they said, to render tribute to Caesar and therefore made the contribution. Their attitude occasioned earnest remonstrance and bitter criticism, but the Quakers remained unmoved and uniformly refused to appropriate men or money for the war, except in the indirect way just described. When no other alternative seemed possible, the strict Quakers refused to try for seats in the assembly and allowed that body to pass under the control of those who had no scruples against military operations. The rapid growth of the democratic spirit was not peculiar, however, to the Puritan and Quaker colonies. The conditions did not favor aristocracy and the experiments made in that direction showed conclusively that its establishment was impracticable. The resources of the colonies would not support the necessary expenditure, nor was the temper of the people favorable in any greater degree. Something in that environment seemed to arouse the spirit of liberty and inspire the assertion of individual and colonial rights in the most aggressive fashion. To this, there are many witnesses whose testimony, biased though it was, shows unmistakably the nature of the new movement. Take, for example, the indignant references of Governor Spotswood of Virginia to the election of representatives, persons of narrow fortunes, and mean understandings, and to the general opinion that he is the best patriot that most violently opposes all overtures for raising money, let the occasion be what it will. And to the mobbish candidates, who always outbid the gentlemen of sense and principles, for they stick not to vow to their electors, that no consideration whatever shall engage them to raise money. He was particularly aggrieved because some of them have so little shame as publicly to declare that if, in assembly, anything should be proposed which they judged might be disagreeable to their constituents, they would oppose it, though they knew in their conscience it would be for the good of the country. He denounced those who inflame the common people with notions of the ruin of their liberties, and charged that the liberty of doing wrong is none of ye least contended for here. In Pennsylvania, the same leaven was at work, even under the proprietorship of one so little disposed to arbitrary rule as was William Penn. In 1704, it was said that the people think all that can be grasped to be their native right. It was alleged that some people's brains are as soon intoxicated with power as the natives are with their beloved liquor, and as little to be trusted with it. Significant was the denunciation of one guest, because a desire to be somebody and an unjust method of craving and getting, seems to be the rule of his light. Penn himself observed this excess of vanity on the part of the Americans. Having got out of the crowd in which they were lost here, said he, upon every little eminency there, they think nothing taller than themselves but the trees. What the governors or royal agents characterize as stubbornness or stinginess or quibbling over technicalities, Or playing into the hands of upstarts and demagogues was, however, merely the expression, often indeed very crude, of the widespread democratic sentiment slowly gaining strength for the outburst in the revolution. The storm center of the democratic movement during the colonial period was the conflict between the governors and the colonial legislatures, or assemblies. For this contest, there was English precedent in the action of parliament during the 17th century and local reason in the colonial desire to escape administrative control by the home government. Especially in Massachusetts and New York, the conflict was hard fought, bitter, and long protracted, but the difficulty was by no means confined to these provinces. In the course of this battle, the assembly constantly gained on the governor and steadily enlarged its power at the expense of his. The control of the finances, especially, gave them the opportunity to direct or influence the governor's activity in many ways. Appropriations might be withheld to the embarrassment of the administration, or, if granted, might be made for specific and detailed purposes— The salary of the governor was determined by the assembly, and voted by that body at its pleasure, thus making it master of the governor's financial situation, an advantage more than once used to extort his assent to measures favored by the assembly. The appointing power was also in many cases wrested from the governor and assumed by the representatives of the people. This was especially true as to the treasurer, who, as financial agent of the colony, was exposed to attack. The movement was not confined, however, to this officer— but the Assembly appointed in some cases nearly all the agents of administration, as in Pennsylvania and South Carolina. In other ways, the Assembly asserted its power by assuming the direction of matters of public policy, which had generally been considered a part of the prerogative of the executive. Indian affairs, for example, is sometimes managed by means of commissions appointed for that purpose. Intercolonial relations were also treated in the same fashion. Military affairs, the legislature sometimes controlled by granting supplies prescribing the operations to be undertaken, appointing and removing officers, and even interfering with the discipline of the troops. So far had these encroachments gone, that in 1757, it could be said of Massachusetts that almost every act of executive and legislative power, whether it be political, judicial, or military, is ordered and directed by the votes and resolves of the General Court, in most cases originating in the House of Representatives. More than anything else, this conflict served to bring out the spirit of democracy which was everywhere ready for action. It was a rallying point around which tendencies favorable to independence and popular government could gather, and as the intercolonial wars helped teach the colonists military science, so these political battles afforded them indispensable training in the art of statecraft. On the whole, it may be said that during the colonial period, the democratic spirit made remarkable progress. The colonies passed out of the stage in which there were religious experiments or industrial ventures of a rather hazardous character and became prosperous communities eager for governmental autonomy. The individuals within these colonies were filled with a democratic enthusiasm and ready for an advance in the direction of popular government. Until the decade preceding the revolution, there was, however, little systematic discussion of the problems of political theory, with the exception of the indirect contribution made by the Puritans. A steady democratizing process was going on under the influence of the new conditions, but there was little conscious reflection accompanying this process. With the agitation preliminary to the revolution came a group of leaders who sought a philosophical basis for their policies and, accordingly, made frequent use of the formulae of political theory in their great struggle for independence. End of chapter one.